All right, Salt City, I'm excited to be with you this morning. We are starting a new series in the Gospel of Matthew called Your Kingdom Come. And the phrase, Your Kingdom Come, is very familiar to most of us. It comes from the Lord's Prayer. And what we're doing over the next several months is we're bowing together before King Jesus and we are praying to him collectively as we study this book, Your Kingdom Come. And this is very purposeful because we are in a time of anxiety related to coronavirus, related to racial injustice, and things are starting to ramp up related to politics. And a lot of this has to do with the kingdom that we are choosing to associate with. If we associate with the kingdom of this world, we will be filled with fear and anxiety in this time of uncertainty. But if we are filled with this belief that Jesus is sitting on the throne ruling and reigning over the universe, then we will be filled with bold faith over the next several months. And so let's look at this book together and see the beginning of the gospel of Jesus and this reality that Jesus is the king. So let's look at three aspects of his kingship this morning. The first one is that he is the anticipated king. So let's look at Matthew 1, starting with verse 1, and we're going to read verse 1, and then we're going to skip ahead to verse 17. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So we see immediately the start of this book of Matthew is a history. The person who wrote it was named Matthew, and Matthew was a tax collector. In other words, he worked for the Roman government. Jesus came along and said, Matthew, come follow me which was very purposeful because Matthew not only was converted to Jesus, but he also was a detail guy. He was a historian. And so he recorded the events that happened in Jesus' life. And then he actually went back and wrote this gospel of Matthew. And his purpose is really to prove that Jesus is the king. And one of the ways that he seeks to do that in the Gospel of Matthew is he writes out Jesus' genealogy. It was very important for his Jewish, Jewish audience that they knew a couple things about Jesus. One was that Jesus was a son of Abraham, and the other was that Jesus was a son of David. And this is because of a long history that the Jews believed that their Messiah would descend both from Abraham and from David. Let me show you kind of how they came to this conclusion based on thousands of years of history, beginning in the very first book of the Bible, 
Genesis. So some of you might remember that we actually studied this passage in Genesis and God showed up to Abraham, who Matthew says is in Jesus' genealogy. And this is what God says to Abraham. He says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So from the very beginning of this covenant that God is making with the Jewish people, he is saying to Abraham, it's in you, it's in your family, it's from your offspring that I will bless the entire world. In other words, the long-awaited Messiah will come from your line. The book of Genesis continues to clarify this in Genesis 22, verse 18, when God again comes to Abraham and he says, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so what happens here is God narrows down the promise and he doesn't just say that the blessing is going to come to his family in general, but it's going to come to his offspring one person in particular. And the apostle Paul clarifies this reality in Galatians chapter three, verse 16. This is what Paul says, interpreting Genesis 22, verse 18. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring who is Christ. So Paul says, when God inspired Moses to write Genesis twenty-two eighteen and say that it would be in his offspring, in Abraham's offspring, that all the families of the earth would be blessed, he was referring to one person and that one person is King Jesus. So there's the establishment from the biblical text that Jesus is the son of Abraham. But it's also important to Matthew that we recognize that Jesus is not just son of Abraham, but son of David. And this is why it's important that Jesus is son of David. Because David was the king who was after God's own heart. And God made precious and very great promises to David that his offspring would sit on the throne of the kingdom of God forever. This is what God said to David in 1 Chronicles 17, verses 11 through 14. He makes this promise to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever. Now this passage is pretty typical of the Old Testament prophets, because we see in the passage a near fulfillment. So you see that God promises David that he's going to have an offspring who's going to 
build a house for him. And we actually saw the fulfillment of that promise in a very certain way in the birth of Solomon and Solomon building the temple in the Old Testament. But there's also these grand, far-reaching promises in this text as well that were not fulfilled in Solomon. Namely, that this offspring of David would establish his throne forever. And so there was an anticipation in the people of God that one day there would be a king whose kingdom would never end. That unlike all of their kings down through the ages who lived, who sinned, and who died, they would have a perfect king who would not sin and thus would live and live forever and reign forever. So here's what Matthew is unmistakably saying in this text. He is saying, Jesus is this long anticipated person. Notice at the end of verse 17, he says, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, he uses the definite article, the Christ, 14 generations. Abraham wasn't the Christ. David wasn't the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Christ means anointed one. And before that, Matthew had listed all of these kings in Jesus' genealogy. And he's saying, that wasn't the anointed one, even though his head may have been anointed with oil. That was not the anointed one. None of those kings were the anointed one. Jesus is uniquely the Christ, the anointed one. Okay, if you're not amazed by this reality, let me give you sort of a very stupid version of this reality, just to kind of blow your mind with how amazing what we're talking about is, okay? So I remember when I was a senior in high school, there was this basketball player named LeBron James, who was also a senior in high school at the time. And on the cover of Sports Illustrated, it said in 2002, the chosen one. And what that was really referring to was Michael Jordan's career was coming to a close. He was playing for the Washington Wizards at the time. He was kind of washed up. His career was coming to a close and everyone was trying to anticipate who the next great basketball player to sit on the throne would be. And so there was this anticipation that LeBron James was the chosen one. He was that person. And then as soon as LeBron James entered the NBA, his nickname became King James. And it's largely believed that LeBron James has filled those shoes, become a top five basketball player of all time. And people are constantly just celebrating this fact that he was anticipated as the king and that he fulfilled everyone's expectations. And so Almost guaranteed, if you go on ESPN tonight, watch Sports Center, they're going to talk about King James. They're going to talk about LeBron James. You go on ESPN.com right now, somebody's talking about LeBron James because people are still relishing this reality. If we're relishing that reality, how much more should we be relishing this reality that for thousands of years, 
Jesus was anticipated to be not the king of some silly game where people put an orange ball in a hoop, but was the king of the universe. And it was anticipated for thousands of years. And he came and met and exceeded everyone's expectations of what he would be. The miracle working king, the loving king, the kind king, the humble king, the king who would die in our place for our sins and would rise from death. So Jesus, this morning, I'm presenting to him to you, not as one option among many kings, but as the king of kings, as the supreme ruler and authority in the universe. And I'm calling you to believe in him, to place your trust in him, to cast away every other person that you have called king, including yourself, and to bow down to Jesus because he is the one we've been waiting for. But Jesus is not just anticipated king. He is also thankfully our humble king. Now this next part of the story is going to be very familiar and it's going to bring some Christmas vibes to all of us. So Matthew 1 verses 18 through 25 says this, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. And so I said that when we read that story, we immediately get warm, fuzzy feelings and we think about Christmas. But when we think more deeply about the story, it actually is an uncomfortable story. This would have been a scandal. Mary and Joseph were living in a very traditional culture. Mary was a teenage girl. They were engaged to be married and sex before marriage was strictly forbidden. In fact, you could have been stoned in that community for having sex outside of the context of marriage. And so Mary comes to Joseph and tells him this story that she has conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have been tempted to not believe Mary if I were Joseph. I mean, like, that is a very conveniently made up story, but quite frankly, I don't believe you. So it takes a dream 
for Joseph to believe his soon-to-be wife, and he comes to accept the reality that a miracle has happened, and that the child who is inside of Mary is of both human and divine origin. Now, why did Jesus choose to come into the world in this way? He would be misunderstood throughout his entire life. People would constantly be throwing this back in his face and say, you're the son of immorality. Why should we listen to you? Why did Jesus choose to come into the world this way? Because he wanted us to know that he was the savior of all people. He came into the world in the most humble possible way, descending from a supposed adulterous teenage girl so that we would know that he came to rescue all of us. No one is outside of the message of salvation that Jesus offers to the world. This is made explicit because this is really the end of the genealogy that Matthew spells out. So he goes through 14 generations from Abraham to David, and then 14 more generations to Babylon, and then 14 more generations to Jesus. And he names kings in those generations, but he also names prostitutes. He names adulterers. He names very righteous and upstanding people. He names people from different races. He names males and he names females. And he ends that genealogy with an ordinary man and an ordinary woman who he chooses to come into the world through. And his purpose in doing it this way is to say that he is the Messiah, not just of the rich or not just of the poor, not just of ethnic minorities and not just of ethnic majorities. He is the savior of all people who will believe in him. This is something that actually becomes offensive about Jesus, especially in a polarized society like we live in, where people want to draw a line and they want to say, these are the people who are in and these are the people who are out. And unless you subscribe to this certain political agenda or you subscribe to this certain view of justice, then you're out or you're in. And Jesus says, I am here for everybody. That's why he came into the world the way that he did. Do you guys remember uh, when you were in maybe middle school or high school, I think everyone has these vivid memories of the lunch table, just walking out of the lunch line with your tray, maybe on the first day of school, and you're looking around and you're like, where am I going to sit? And you're hoping that one of your friends is in your lunch period And you're like, okay, that table's too cool for me. That table's not cool enough. That table's just right. And then you're making a beeline for that table. Here's the thing about Jesus' lunch table. Anybody can sit at Jesus' lunch table. 
Jesus is the coolest guy in the room. He's the creator of heaven and earth. And he's sitting and what's offensive and awesome about his lunch table is absolutely anybody can sit at his lunch table. And so if you feel like you're on the outside looking in, you're not. You can come in. You can come to Jesus because anybody can get in on this. Your past can't exclude you from Jesus' table. Your status can't exclude you from Jesus' table. Your race can't exclude you from Jesus' table. Here, here's something that I thought about that's kind of funny. That's, that's actually really good news. Do you guys know that Jesus was not a Christian? Here, here's what I mean by that. Christian means little Christ. Jesus was not a Christian. Jesus was the Christ. And sometimes what we do is we project on Jesus what Christians that we know are like, which is kind of fair, right? Christians should act like Jesus, but Christians don't always act like Jesus. And I know right now in our society, Christians have a bad reputation for being exclusive and for people not really thinking that the family of God is the place for them. Well, I've got good news for you. Jesus isn't a Christian. Jesus is the Christ. You can come to Jesus because he is absolutely the real deal. And if Jesus is the Christ, then Christians can just be Christians and the church can just be the family of God. And we can understand that we're never going to be as welcoming as Jesus. We're going to try to be welcoming like Jesus. We're going to try to reach out to people that aren't like us. We're going to repent of our sin, but Jesus is the real deal. We're always just trying to follow after him. Okay, so we see that Jesus is the anticipated king. We see that Jesus is the humble king. And the last thing we're going to see is that Jesus is the polarizing king. Sometimes we think that because Jesus is kind, Jesus is humble, and he welcomes anyone who wants to come in into his family, therefore everyone's going to love Jesus. But that has never been the case. Matthew 2, 1 through 6 starts to spell this out for us. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So here's what happens. The Magi, these wise men, these astrologers come from the east. They've seen a star in the sky. They want to come and worship King Jesus. And they go to Herod and Herod hears this news and it says that he is troubled. And doesn't just say that he is troubled, but it says that all of Jerusalem is troubled along with him. And we get some insight from history about why they were troubled. It's because Herod was a dictator. Herod was a king who 
terrorized people under his leadership. In fact, he killed members of his own family who were on his side just because he suspected that they were against him. He ruled with an iron fist. And so just the idea that someone in his region was claiming to be king troubled everyone because it was massively upsetting the status quo. So Herod plays it cool and he asks the Magi where this king is to be born. They actually go to the chief priests and the scribes of the people. So he goes to the the Jewish religious leaders and asks them. And they quote scripture to him. So they open up the Bible and they say, well, if this really is the long anticipated Messiah, then he's going to be born in Bethlehem because the prophet wrote about him. And this is what the prophet said, and you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Which gives us a little bit more insight into why Herod would be troubled. Actually, we'll see later on in the text, he's troubled to the point that he sends a delegation to Bethlehem to kill all of the young boys, hoping to kill Jesus in the process. And we see that what is threatening about Jesus to Herod is actually his kindness. Do you see at the end of verse six, it says that this Jesus is going to shepherd the people of Israel. What was threatening about Jesus to Herod is that Jesus was the exact opposite of who Herod was. He led through the law. He read through pounding people. He led through terror. He led through killing people. He didn't have the hearts of people. He had their allegiance out of fear. And what threatened him about Jesus was that Jesus would be a person who would lead his people in love, like a shepherd with its sheep. And so Jesus, we see, is this incredibly polarizing character because he upsets the status quo. And so we have the Magi going to worship Jesus, and we have Herod seeking to kill Jesus. I think we can all understand this. We've all experienced this reality of someone coming into our space and upsetting what is happening and feeling jealous and feeling angry, not because that person is doing something wrong, but actually because that person is doing something right. So just imagine some silly scenario. Imagine that you're part of a book club. You've been leading this book club. You're the best reader in the book club. You know the most about the books that you're reading, and you're the smartest person in the room, and everybody is looking to you. And then somebody new moves into your neighborhood, and they start coming to the book club, and they are way more well-read than you are. 
They're way smarter than you are. They're way better at leading book discussions than you are. And you might find yourself, even in a scenario like that, starting to resent that that person moved into your neighborhood because they're upsetting how things used to be. You liked being the smartest person in the room. You liked being the person that everyone was looking to. And we begin to understand how Herod was feeling about Jesus. You're not the king, I'm the king. And we find ourselves with this question to end our message. Will I demand kingship of my own life or will I bow before King Jesus? Will I seek to eliminate Jesus' influence from my life, push him onto the margins, keep him in a comfortable place, Or will I bow before him as the Lord of my life? Jesus is the king. Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is leading us toward his kingdom. And he's asking us to submit to him. Will you submit? Let's pray. Father God, Thank you that you sent Jesus to be our king. We are exhausted trying to be the king of our own life. It's uh, a job that's too big for us. And it's why so many of us are filled with anxiety and fear and doubt. And so would you give us the grace to bow to humble ourselves, to acknowledge that you are king, to love you and to worship you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.